Okay, well we got Romans 7 and 8 there that we just read. I mean, we read Romans 7 and we immediately identify with what Paul is saying. We, we wish to do good, but the good that we, we feel that we would love to do, that we perceive so finely that we, we could see ourselves doing, we find that we can't do. And we're held back all the time, it seems, by inevitable forces, but they are not actually inevitable. They can be overcome. And whatever reading we have of Romans 7, however, we understand that, whether that's defeatism or whether it's just Paul uh, in a low moment or whether that is just simply how it is, that we cannot be ultimately righteous, or whether you, you view it as autobiography. Um, bit of a shame that the... Uh, the tenses there don't really allow it to be autobiography, but uh, anyway, if that's how you read it, whatever, you still got to square it against Romans chapter 8, where he is rejoicing in the absolute certainty of our salvation in the end. And he talks about how God's Spirit will bring this about, and um, we won't go into that, but I, I want to focus on Romans 8 verse 28 we know that all things work together for good to them that love God now what that clearly does not mean is that everything is going to kind of work out okay in this life that everything is going to be good and sort itself out and no problem because life and lives that we observe around us just don't work out in that sense for for good Uh, we are called to carry a cross to suffer now and to be redeemed in glory when the Lord returns so it clearly can't mean that somehow there's a happy ending to every single story there isn't in this life and that is the whole challenge of faith so then I want to focus more on this word good all things work together for good and I want to interpret it in the context of what we read in, in Romans as well as in Paul's later later letters but particularly here in, in Romans what is good Well, Romans 7, no good thing dwells within me. The good that I would do, I do not. That's Romans 7, 18 and 19. And then here in Romans 8, Paul is saying, but in the end, all things work together for good. Uh, He's clearly using the word good in Romans, in in the, let's say, Romans 1 to 8, in the sort of doctrinal section, to talk about uh, moral righteousness. He talks about Jesus as a good man, for a good man some would even dare to die, Romans 5 verse 7. He's spoken in Romans 2 about the need to do good, and he means righteous behaviour. And he says that all things actually work together for good, for those who love God. And again, the idea of those who love God is really picking up what he's just been saying in Romans 7 in in 19 especially he says that you know he would love to do good but it doesn't work out so we love God as Romans 7 says we, we love God but we can't seem to do good in a moral sense and yet here he says that all things in the end do work together for good to those like the Paul of Romans 7, like you and me, who love God. Now, what are the all things? Well, in Romans 8, uh, 22, just a few verses earlier, we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain until now. And I think the idea of the all things and the whole or all of creation uh, are sort of one and the same thing in Paul's mind. I think he's saying that all things and the whole cosmos are working together so that we might achieve, in the end, that good 
which we feel we are denied achieving by whatever we might, whatever excuses we may make, our nature, our situation, or whatever. But in the end, all things in the entire cosmos, all of creation, are actually working together so that we, in the end, might achieve that good which we feel that we we can't seem to to rise to. You're probably aware that Romans is really in two halves. <coughs> Well, three three parts really. There's one to eight, the purely doctrinal section, and then nine to eleven sort of exemplifies that uh, in the example of Israel, and then the rest of the uh, chapter, the rest of the book from twelve to the end, is all purely practical stuff that's building on the doctrinal basis that he's laid, and he there talks a number of times about doing good. We are to cleave to the good, to overcome evil with good, to do good, be wise to that which is good and simple concerning evil. It's Romans 12, 2, 9, 21, 13 verse 3, 16 verse 19. So he exhorts us to do good. And yet he says in Romans 7, the good that I wish to do, I don't seem able to do. But he says here in Romans 8 that actually all things work together for good. Now, going further with this idea of good, in Paul's later letters, Philippians 1 verse 6, God has begun a good work, and it's the same Greek word all the way through in all these examples I'm going to quote, God has begun a good work in us and will bring it to completion in the day of Christ's return. Ephesians 2.10, at baptism we were created in Christ unto good works. So then, it can't be that we cannot do good. It's difficult but all things are working together so that we might do good because that is the whole point of our baptism into Christ unto good works you may like to have a look at 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 2 Corinthians 9 8 where he says that God has given us all sufficiency to abound to every good work he's given us all sufficiency to abound in every good work and then on a bit to uh, 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.21, 2 Timothy 2.21, we are sanctified and prepared to perform every good work which God intends for us. That Greek word translated prepared, it literally means provided for. We are sanctified and have been provided for to perform every good work that God intends for us. Got the same idea. 2 Timothy 3.17 We are fully equipped by God to do every good work in his purpose for us. So then, all things work together for good, that we might achieve good. So this puts paid, I think, once and for all to the idea that we can do no good, good work because we don't have the money, the life situation, the resources, or even because we feel our nature is too weak, if that's how you read Romans 7. All that ultimately does not stand up to these verses we've just read. That God has prepared these good works for us to do, he has equipped us to do every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17, he has provided for us to perform every good work he intends, 2 Timothy 2.21. Titus 3 verse 1, we having every sufficiency, every sufficiency to do these good works intended, he said, you must be ready to every good work. Carpe diem. Grasp the moment. 
And so, 2 Thessalonians 2.17, if this is how you live, you will be established in every good work you put your hands to. No one will ultimately harm you, Peter says, 1 Peter 3.13, if you follow after good works. And we will be perfected or completed, Hebrews 13.21, in every good work, in the doing of his will. So, it's clear that the doing of God's will is doing these good works, which he laments in Romans 7, he feels at that time unable to, to achieve. But then Romans 8.28, our verse we're basing all this on, all things, and I suggested that's the same as all creation, all of the cosmos, is working together for good, so that we might achieve that good which in our weak moments appears out of our grasp. So then, all this is possible for those that love God. Yes, those like in Romans 7 who say, I, I would um, dearly wish to do the right thing. I love the good. I love the idea of, of righteousness. But verse John 4 and 5 makes it pretty clear that to love God is to love others. So then, this good that we are asked to do is for others, ultimately, for our brethren. And God is working together with us for our good. And that Greek word translated to work together is not that common. And it's just used in a few places that we'll have a look at. Uh, Mark 16 verse 20, where the Lord tells us to, to go out and uh, preach the gospel to all the world, and it, he says, or it's observed rather, that the Lord Jesus worked together with those who sought to preach the gospel. And putting it another way, Matthew 28 verse 20, he says that he would be with those who preach his word to others unto the end of the world. You can read that as to the end of the age in AD 70, all in a literal sense, to the end of the world. He will be with us, whether it's talking to people in our unbelieving family in some run-down apartment block in, in Riga or London or Moscow or New York or wherever it might be, whether it's going to the Amazonian Indians whatever it might be, or talking to that person that you work with. In all those things, the Lord is working together with you. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, you've got it again. We are workers together with him in the work of saving other people. So there is a huge system, if you like, which is operating unseen in our lives in this world in order to bring men and women to God's kingdom those who have been called according to his purpose now it's easy to think and one encounters this attitude quite often that I will work in my career in my business until I've got the resources to serve God as I think I, I could and I'll put everything on hold until then but that I think is a result of the kind of manic capitalism deceiving us that everything has been somehow commodified, everything's got a price tag, if I've got the money then I can do it. But this isn't the case. The real doing of good to others is kindness, acceptance, comfort, forgiveness, interest in others' needs, involvement in their sufferings. That's the essence of being Christ in this world. And of course Jesus himself, as Robert Roberts put it, did all that he did with a minimum of miracle and with pretty well no cash behind him at all. So then all this huge 
desire of God to save men and women is focused and operates and is operational through us. And Ephesians 2 verse 10 seems to say that we each have good works that were before ordained that we should walk in them. That is, we should live a way of life which achieves them. And I think we need to pray to God very seriously and ask him, what is his hope for us? What is his intention? What are those good works? What area uh, are we intended to be working in if, if, we don't, uh, if we don't perceive it? Because he is the God who saves. And he saves through people. There is, if you like, a mechanism through which he works. He could, of course, just zap whoever he wants with salvation. He could give people whatever they need, just parachute it down from heaven. But he chooses to work through us. He chooses to work in that way. And that is where the whole thing sort of gets a bit difficult to understand, because we let the ball drop. We individually fail, other people fail us. And so the great system of salvation doesn't just march ahead as we would like it to, as we think it it ought to. But the point is that those who are the called according to God's purpose have all things, the whole cosmic creation is, is there functioning so that we might be able to achieve good, so that we might do good works. And, so, and those good works are ultimately for others in the final, in the final analysis. And so God wants to save all those who have been called. And that's why if someone is called, he will never lose his grip on them. Now we may not perceive that because people may come into our lives for a short period or even for many years and they drift off and we tend to think, well, where are you tonight? You know, that Bob Dylan song, where, where are you tonight? And we don't know where they are. They didn't find our spiritual uh, company helpful to them for whatever reason. Maybe their fault, maybe our fault, a bit of both. And we tend to just forget that they existed. When you look back in your life, you look at old photo albums or just think back, think of all the people who drifted through your life that you've known, who've gone off and we don't know where they are. You know, God is still working with those people right up to their deathbed. He is working. They're in his grip. And he typically works with them through other people. So if you can get into this way of life and thinking that I am here for a purpose and God has got works, good works, that he has enabled me to perform. But once you're in that mindset, you'll stop complaining in your own mind about lack of resources, be it time, money, health, whatever. Whilst we are still kicking on this earth, God has enabled us, has empowered us to work for good and he is working together with us. All things work together for good. All of creation, Romans 8, 22. Uh, all, all things are working together. So, if there's snow in Latvia, chronic snowfall, and if there's flash floods in Australia, you know, that was all for a purpose. It was so that you could lift up that person, that old lady who slipped on the ice. It's so that you could dig out that old brother from his snowed up little house. It's so that you could take in that family that's lost their lost their property. It's so that you could comfort that person who suffered in, in some way from those flash floods. And all those things are happening for our good in the sense that so that we can achieve the good that God has intended. And so then 
it's almost too good news what he says what he goes on to say here that those who are the called according to his purpose are predestinated and they are justified and shall be glorified and we tend to wonder I guess well am I called are these people I'm working with or trying to give my life for are they called and there's no question that they are Paul opens Romans in Romans 1 verses 1 and 6 and 7 by assuring us that we are called just as surely as he was and so if you hear the call of the gospel you're called the call is in that sense in God's word of invitation so if I invite you round at my house tomorrow night at 8 o'clock for dinner you're called you're invited you may not come or you may be late or you may pretend you didn't hear me but you're called that's it once you hear the call the invitation you're invited and that's it and the calling of God, Romans 11.29 is without repentance the AV says, in other words without a change of mind you can never be disinvited or become uncalled time and again in Paul's letters particularly to the Corinthians he reminds them that they are called God has saved us to Timothy 1.9 and called us with a holy calling according to his purpose and grace so then this whole idea of calling and this strange word predestination that we uh, fight a bit shy of why does Paul start talking about that here? doesn't he sort of muddy the waters by bringing that idea in? not at all, he doesn't just think okay I'll just write on something about predestination it's all, the whole of Romans 1-8 to is all very much following through um, a logical progression and he talks about it here because he's trying to persuade us of grace that we are saved by grace we who can say amen to Paul in Romans 7 are saved by grace and that's why he starts talking about predestination and that is actually why in 9 to 11 he talks about Israel as the uh, sort of parade example of that, that grace but the fact that there is something called predestination and foreknowledge whatever exactly it means and how precisely it's articulated in human life there is such a thing as predestination and foreknowledge and that simply shows that we are saved by grace and everything within us now fights against us that it can't be that just because I heard the gospel that I was called am I therefore predestinated? am I therefore foreknown and justified and glorified? we've got to make our calling and election sure Paul says, uh, Peter says to Peter 1.10 and yet here Paul seems to be saying that if you're called you're predestinated and that's it and justified and the rest, saved so how do we you know, how do, how do we square that? once you're called, does that mean that that's it? well <clears throat> it's not quite as simple as that but it almost is as simple as that because really if you are called to God's kingdom the only reason you're not going to be there is if you willfully and consciously desire not to be part of that purpose if you look at that invitation to be in God's kingdom and say no I don't want to be there and you fight against the grip of God all your life until you cough and hack yourself into your grave saying no I don't want to be there but I don't think that's us it's certainly not me and I don't think it's you either and so you're left with 
conclusion that is almost inconvenient because it's too good news. The gospel is almost too good. That God has called us and he has predestinated us and yes, he, he allows us to fight that predestination. If you really, excuse me for saying it, but I mean this is what it comes down to. If you put a finger up in God's face repeatedly all your life, every day of your life and say, I don't want it okay, so you won't have it because God will not in that sense force you but you and I aren't like that we're born in Romans 7 we're like, yeah, I want to do good but I don't know, I keep failing I can't seem to be able to get there yeah, that's us, but we love God and we want to be there and what Paul is really saying here is, and so you will be and you know he keeps using this sort of legal jargon all the way through and he really concludes Romans 8 really with that um, 31 what shall we then say to these things this is a legal term what's the summing up of the case then and he uses that phrase, as a, uh, phrase a few times in, uh, in Romans and each time there is kind of silence because we don't really want to have to admit that wow I am saved I will be saved what shall we then say what is the summing up if God be for us that's again a legal term who can be against us 33 who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect it is God who justifies so there we are in the dock and there is nobody laying any charge to us whom God has called and God is for us he is our advocate 31 uh, and he's used this language um, <coughs> earlier there in, in Romans 8.27 that Jesus is making intercession for us and again 26 the spirit is making intercession that he is our advocate now wait a minute who's the, who's the judge? God or Jesus? they're the judge but the judge is the same as the counsel for the defence and now 33 there's no case there's no case against us so if you like it's a perversion of justice there is no case there is silence when Paul says so what's the summing up what should we then say to these things there is nothing because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord now how does that work out he, he's said that we are the called ones but he says there in uh, 33 who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect or God's called ones well who is the called one who is the elect of God it is Jesus uh, we, we know that um, because he's actually quoting there from, uh, from the, uh, the suffering servant songs in Isaiah about Jesus Isaiah 42 verse 1 my elect in whom my soul delights those of us who are baptized into Christ are in a status whereby all that is true of him becomes true of us if he's God's chosen one, God's elect 
so are we. Time's uh, shooting away, but you could actually show that there's a number of passages, uh, phrases here in Romans 8 at the end, where he's quoting from the suffering servant songs about Jesus and applying that language to us. All that is true of him becomes true of us. If he's the seed of Abraham, so are we. And that is why, verse 39, he locates the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who are in Christ are inseparable from the love of God. You understand why we should do all we can to persuade men and women to be baptized into Christ. Not put up any barrier there, but urge people into Christ. And so, now then, verse 34, who is he that condemns? There, again, silence. The only one who can condemn is Jesus. Who is he that condemns? Christ. But wait a minute, it's Christ, 34, who is at the right hand of God making intercession as the counsel for the defence for us. So the prosecutor's desk is empty. There's no witnesses anymore. Because we are Christ. And this is now Christ standing in the dock. It's, it's too good news. We struggle to believe this. I remember writing an editorial in Gospel News magazine, this was some years ago, and it was called, We Will Be There. And you know, at the end of each, uh, well, uh, when each uh, edition of the magazine goes out, you normally get emails and letters, uh, sort of saying, oh yeah, didn't agree with this point, or yeah, that was a good point, or thank you, or no thank you, or whatever it is. Uh, normally, you know, fairly nicely worded, all in a good spirit. But on that one, We Will Be There, I got a huge number. I, I got more protests than I ever had over any editorial. People saying, no. That's presumptuous or whatever, or how do you know, or the rest of it. And that is really a reflection of, of what is in my own mind, and I think in yours, when we face the reality of God's salvation. That we will be there. That we are in Christ. And we shall be saved. We are justified and glorified because we are in him who is the just one in Christ who is glorified. And so nothing can separate us from that love which is in him. And out of all the scary things that he lists in verse 38 and 39 that we think might separate us from the love of God that is in Christ principalities, powers, angels, height, depth creatures, dragons, monsters, the rest the scariest thing for me and I have put a red circle around this in one of my Bibles in 38 I'm persuaded that neither death nor life is actually life that is the worrying bit there for me out of all the other things I don't doubt the other things scary monsters and super creeps can't, uh, can't separate us from the love of God which is in Christ yep, no doubt but life you know our possibility, our tendency to failure. That might. But he says that not even that. Now, of course, you know, I'm not saying Romans 6, let us continue in sin that grace may, may abound. Certainly not. If you grasp what he's saying here, you're never going to do that. You're just going to say, wow. And you're going to really go out there and do your very best to live as a man or woman who is in Christ, who is inseparable from God's love, who is not condemned, who has no witness against him or her, despite all our sins, 
and somebody for whom all things are working together so that we might achieve good and we will go out humbled and just awed by that great salvation by knowing that God is standing there as it were to confirm every choice that we make every letter you write every act of kindness, concern, gentleness that you seek to show in your life God is waiting there to confirm that to pick it up and run with it and work with it not just one or two things you might gingerly start out on that road of maybe if you've not done something like this before writing a letter to someone who's terminally ill or trying to introduce the gospel to somebody but once, once you get in this as a way of life when you're doing that sort of thing every day so many times a day you get this great sense of connection with this huge all things all of the cosmos that are sort of working together with you never again do you see defeat do you see failure do you see frustration because the airport's shut because of snow or because of a dust cloud or whatever it might be and so your plans have changed or this didn't work out or you fell over and broke your leg or you had a car crash or whatever it might be all those things you know are all working together that in the very end in that final ultimate analysis which is the only analysis that's worth anything you and I might be working together with God for him and on his side for good both now and forever Amen